The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, I want us to go to Gethsemane. In Mark, the 14th chapter, verse 32, immediately after Peter has denied that he would ever betray the Lord, of course, you know what happened. We fleshed that out pretty well last time I was standing before you about the pride that Peter had that went before his fall. But at this point, Peter's with him, and Peter's declaring his allegiance. And from that account, it says, They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. What if you knew the exact moment that you would die? I've often thought about those who sit on death row. Most of the time it's a long, drawn-out process, but there comes a time when all the appeals are exhausted and the courts set a date and a time and say to that person, on this date and at this time, you're going to be executed. It's always fascinated me. I don't mean in a good way. I mean in the, in the way of, I've always thought, what would it be like if I knew that tomorrow night at 6 p.m. I was going to be executed, I was going to die? Well, death didn't sneak up on Jesus. It sneaks up on us sometimes. Sometimes our death is expected. We've been praying for some who we expect at any moment to pass away and some that we've been praying for have done that. Sometimes death comes like a thief in the night. It's very unexpected, very much a surprise. And we call those times often tragedies when they happen. But death did not sneak up on Jesus. How many times in the scripture did he say in the gospels, mine hour has not yet come? How many times did he pass through the crowds that would have taken his life? But it's said of him that his hour had not yet come. Well, we are approaching that hour. We are approaching that time, that moment, that period of time where Jesus is going to die and he knows it's coming. He knows it's, it's coming. And, and I've thought about this from the standpoint of what if it was me that, that what if I knew that I was getting close to death and I knew the exact time when I was going to die. I think the things that I did would carry more significance, wouldn't they? I think I'd be particularly focused on some things that maybe uh, things that I needed to do or wanted to do. I thought about that last meal that they offer the condemned prisoners. You know, that would carry some great significance to me. I'd have to think about what I would want in that, at that time. I don't believe I'd be flipping about it. Now, let me make this clear. Every single thing Jesus did carried great significance throughout his life. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to relate it to our experience, though. There's a lot of things I do that don't mean anything. You know, there's a lot of things that I do 
that I just do flippantly and don't even remember that I did them. Now, Jesus wasn't like that. Everything he did carried great significance. But as we approach the time of his death, I believe there's some important things that he's doing. One of the things he's done is he has broken bread with his disciples. He said, here, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. That was a very symbolic thing that he did. The bread wasn't his body, but it symbolized his body. He said, take this cup and drink ye all of it. He didn't say, let me sip it while y'all watch me. As some of our other denominations do, they allow the preacher or the priest to do that and not the congregation. They, or they did that for many years. But, but he said, you all drink of it because this is my blood that is shed for many and he, he, it wasn't his literal blood. His blood was still coursing through his veins at that time. But it was a symbol, Brother Mackey, of what he was about to do. I believe as we, as we trace his steps to the cross, we're going to find some very symbolic things that are going to occur. Now, by way of, of a sort of an aside, it's not really a rabbit trail because it's important. It's just kind of something we need to keep in mind. Just remember that the atonement did not occur in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, there was, there's an error out there that's still taught in some places today that's, that is called the, the Garden Atonement error. It's the Garden Atonement heresy. He did not bear our sins in the Garden, okay? There are those that teach that it was in the garden where the, he became sin for us and that the garden plus the cross is what saves us. That's not what's going to happen here. But we are going to see some very symbolic things that occur from this point out as he is making his way up the hill of Calvary to the cross itself. So I want, to, I want us to notice a few things. First of all, in John chapter 18 and verse 1, John doesn't give us as much detail about Gethsemane as the other Gospels do, but I want you to notice something very, very significant that happens as he makes his way to Gethsemane. We sang the song earlier about the brook Kidron, or Cedron, depending on how you pronounce it. In the Hebrew, it's Kidron, K-I-D-R-O-N. It says, when Jesus, in verse 1, had spoken these words... He went forth with his, with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. We know that garden to be Gethsemane. But beloved, I want us to look at something before we get to Gethsemane. In order to get there, he had to cross over the Kidron, the Kidron brook. Now, now the Kidron brook was located at the bottom of a steep valley on the east side of Jerusalem, between the city wall and the Mount of Olives. That channel ran through that deep valley. And it dries up sometimes. But at this time of the year, it would have still been flowing from the late winter rains and that, that had come. During this time, which is called the second temple period, remember the, first, the temple that exists here in Jesus' day is not the temple of Solomon. During this second temple period, a bridge spanned the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. And it is across this very bridge that the fit man would have led the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement each year as he carried that scapegoat symbolically bearing the sins of all of God's people out into the wilderness into a land not inhabited to be let go 
to be let go by the fit man, and the fit man came back. <laughs> the fit man came back, but the goat, the scapegoat with the sins of God's people symbolically upon him, stayed and perished in that land not inhabited out in the wilderness. It's across this very Kidron brook, across this very Kidron valley, each year that this would happen. In crossing the brook Kidron, Jesus, by type, by symbol, is demonstrating that indeed he is about to become sin for his people. Indeed, he is about to drink, drink the cup of the Father's wrath. The very name of the brook, the very name of the brook Kidron carries great meaning. The name literally means murky or dark. Uh, the word turbid is used in the uh, in the definition that you'll look that you'll find in the uh, in the concordance. And the word turbid literally means cloudy. Oh, now listen to this: opaque with suspended matter. Opaque with suspended matter. This was a black, a gloomy brook. And it's referring to the type of water that flowed in it. Now think about this. Now, some of you neat free, some of you germaphobes, okay? Think about crossing this kind of brook. You wouldn't have even wanted to cross that brook. You would not have even wanted to be anywhere near that brook. It's opaque. You can't see through it. You know why you can't see through it? Because there's stuff in it. There's trash in it. You see, this brook was the place traditionally in the, in the time of the first temple where the refuse of the cleansing of the temple was cast. There, there were three cleansings of the temple that we read about in the Old Testament, in the, book of the, in the time of the divided kingdom of Judah. And they, in, in 2 Kings 15, you don't have to turn there, just make you a note. In 2 Kings chapter 15, we read about Asa, the third king of the divided kingdom of Judah. He destroyed idols. He burned them in the Kidron Valley, right down there where that brook was running. In 2 Chronicles 29, Hezekiah, the great king, who was a godly king, he removed the idols and all the uncleanness out of the temple, and he carried it where? To the Kidron Brook. And that's where he cast it. In 2 Kings 23, Josiah he ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, who was the father of Jeremiah the prophet, to remove all the idols from the temple. Remember, remember in Josiah's day that for the two generations, two kings before him, his father and his, and his uh, grandfather had not entered into the, into the temple. In fact, his, his grandfather was a horrible king, Manasseh, and, and the whole the whole temple had been shut down and there had been idols erected in the temple and then nobody had gone in. They even lost the book of the law in the temple. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like, that'd be kind of like losing your Bible at church, right? So, you know, you say, well, I hadn't seen my Bible in 40 years. Well, you hadn't been to church in 40 years or you'd have found it, you see. And that's kind of what was happening with them. They hadn't seen the law, the book of the law in generations because it had been closed up and they hadn't been able to go to the temple. And Josiah removed all of those idols out of the temple and he reduced them to ashes in the Kidron Valley. Something else about this Kidron Brook that I find very touching. <clears throat> at this time, you remember we're at Passover, right? We're at the Passover. What happens at Passover? Thousands 
actually, if we read the, the historical record, if it's accurate, around this time, maybe as many as 250,000 lambs would have been sacrificed in Jerusalem. That's, you think about that. We think about it and then we don't sometimes. What happens when you, when you sacrifice an animal? There's a lot of waste that has to be disposed of. There's a lot of blood that pours out of their veins as they're sacrificed on the altar. You know, you can't just let it pull up. You can't just not deal with it. What did they do with it? In this time, there was a channel that ran from the altar to the brook, Kidron, where this dark, murky little stream carried the blood of the Passover lambs off to be disposed of. And Jesus crossed the Kidron. I don't know about you. That's touching to me. Whenever I've ever faced anything that's that I'm not looking forward to, any surgery, any, any sad or difficult time, I don't like to be reminded of it as I approach that time. I like to be distracted from it. I like to get my mind off of it. But do you see that every step Jesus took toward Calvary was a reminder to him of what was coming? He crossed the brook Kidron. Paul tells us something that I don't, I don't know. I hope you are not like me. I read these things and then I don't read them. I just read through them and I pass over them. But Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Can you imagine if you were sinless today? You've ever had a... I've, I've had... This is a very poor analogy, but, but it, maybe it'll get the point. I've had the experience, and my wife will confirm this, many times of buying a new tie. Nice, pretty new tie, you know? And, I, and I'm proud of that new tie, Brother Mackey. And, and I think the worst thing I ever eat for my clothes is spaghetti. Because every time I eat it, something falls. And you know how, well, I don't want to get too, I just say it this way. If something falls in my plate, it splatters, you know. I can't, every time you know, I pick up a bite of spaghetti and something will fall down. And the next thing I know, I look around and I've got spots all over my brand new, pretty, pure tie. Everything, it was so pretty. It's, I mean, this tie, I don't know how many times this tie has been sent to the cleaners. If I eat today with my tie on, I'll have to, I'll have to send it to the cleaners. You ever had that feeling of, this thing was so nice, and now you've ruined it. I've had it worse. I've had situations where I've completely ruined new pants or a new shirt by something that I got on it, some stain, some dirt, some some stuff that, that, that's, that's nasty that's got on that tie or that shirt or those clothes. This is not even comparable to that. Jesus Christ had no 
sin. I can't imagine that. I can't fathom it. I don't have no sin, okay? I'm not sinless. Jesus Christ is sinless. Jesus Christ had no sin upon him. And let me tell you something, beloved, that's a serious matter. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Jesus Christ knew no sin. It didn't, he didn't, not only he did no sin, he certainly did no sin. He knew no sin. He was the pure, perfect Son of God. He was the pure Lamb of God. They, all these lambs that they sacrificed had to be watched. They had to be kept up for several days and made sure that they, there was no spot or blemish in them. But they were still just normal lambs. That's all they were. But Jesus Christ was not like that. He was perfect, sinless. He was separate from sinners, undefiled. Oh, what a... What a thought. He hath made him not to see sin, not to feel some sin, but he made him to be sin. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And the reason for it, Brother Mackey, is that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All this symbolism as Jesus the pure, perfect, undefiled, separate from sinners, Son of God, crosses that brook Kidron with his disciples clueless, not understanding, not, not getting it at all, crossing the brook Kidron, seeing that dark, murky, bloody water flowing under his feet. Don't you know, as he gets closer to Gethsemane, which carries him closer to the cross, that the burden of what, not the burden of sin, don't, don't misunderstand me. That didn't occur to the cross, but the burden of what he was about to bear, the burden of knowing, as Brother David Crawford said, is a difference in going and not knowing and going and knowing. And he was going and knowing what it was that he was about to face. He goes over the Kidron, and he comes to the garden, to a place called Gethsemane. And can you guess what the name Gethsemane means? It means an oil press. It means an oil press. What symbolism is here? What, what a reminder of what Jesus is about to, to experience. You see, the way they got olive oil in that day is they took olives and they crushed them. And, and get, they crushed them in, in what's called an oil press or an oil crusher, an olive crusher. An olive crusher was a stone basin used to crush olives into pulp. A donkey would pull a horizontal beam, and he would push it, rather, and it would roll a millstone around that would crush these ripe olives, and, and, and they would crush them into a pulp. And heavy stone slabs were lowered onto those olives that had already been crushed, and the olive crusher and the slab's weight gradually squeezed the olive oil out of the pulp where, the, where it ran into a pit to be collected. Oh my goodness, what imagery here. The weight of the wrath of God that was coming, pressing down upon the Son of God. Now remember, I keep saying this to make sure we understand that he is not experiencing that wrath in the garden, but he sees it coming. He sees it coming. Jesus 
in the garden felt the weight of the coming sacrifice. He sensed the, 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 the torture that he was going to experience. And that's why in verse 33 of Mark 14 it says, He taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Beloved, let me just say this as well. <laughs> what a symbol of what he could do that we couldn't do. We're going to read, if you go to well, in verse 35, it says, He went forward a little. Over in Matthew, it reads this way. It says, And he went a little further. Oh, what a symbolism that is. What a, what a, what a, a lesson that is. He said, you tarry here and watch. You can't help me with this. You can't help me do what it is that I have to do. Over in Isaiah chapter, uh, uh, chapter 50, uh, uh, in, in speaking of the Messiah, he says, Thus saith the Lord, in verse 1, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to which I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves. That's where we are, beloved. We are sold in iniquity. We have sold ourselves. The Lord didn't sell us. The Lord created man up right but he has sought out many inventions God created Adam to live in the garden he didn't create Adam to sin but Adam did sin and he plunged us into iniquity and he sold us into slavery of sin he says behold for your iniquities have you sold yourselves and for your transgressions is your mother put away and now listen to this how is it that we're going to help? How is it that there's going to be uh, salvation? He says, wherefore when I came was there no man? <laughs> Why was there no man? Why was no one able to help? He said, when I came and looked, and, 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 and he said, when I looked, there was no man. When I called, was there none to answer? He, he said, wherefore was there there was no man? I'll tell you why there was no man. Because our perfect man, our, or our, 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 our perfect representative, I should say, uh, who was Adam, the first man, plunged us into sin. He plunged us into the bondage of iniquity. He was as good as man could get. You know, the evolutionists teach us that, uh, that man started out bad and it's getting better. Beloved, man started out as good as he could get and he's getting worse all the time. We're not headed up, we're headed down. We're, we're not growing better and better through education. Education's important, education's good, but you can't educate a man into heaven. You can't, you can't, you know, you can't take a man out of the gutter and put a, and put a suit on him and make him something special, beloved, because you can't get the gutter out of the man. You can put the suit on the man, but you can't get the, you, you can't get the man out of the suit. I heard it said this past week, or I think a week and a half ago, something that Elder Ronald Lawrence said, if I can get it right, Elder Ronald Lawrence said, man at, at best, I'm sorry, the best of man is man at best. <laughs> think about that. The best of man is man at best. The best we have to offer to God, he tells us in Isaiah 64, is filthy rags. Whatever good work you've ever done. And I'm sure you've done some good works. I know you. I know some good works that you have done. I hope you know I've done some good works. But every good work that I've ever done for the Lord, everything I've tried to do that's right, it's always been tainted by the thought or the impulse of sin. 
You say, well, I gave to the poor. You're proud of it, aren't you? <laughs> I was. <laughs> I, I did for the church. I worked for the church. I wanted you to know about it. <laughs> I wanted you to hear about it. I didn't, may not have gone out and boasted myself, but boy, I was hoping you'd find out. You see, something within me is always pushing me. It's goading me to sin. There's nothing I've ever done that hadn't been tainted with some impure thought. That's why when he came, there was no man. That's why when he looked, that there was none to answer. Oh, but Isaiah 63 asked the question, Who is this then? Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is it? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He says, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? And thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. Here's the answer to that question. Why, why does he look red? Why, is his, why are his clothes stained, if you will? I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people, there was none with me. Watch and wait and pray. That's all you can do. I've done it alone. He says in verse 5, I looked and there was none to help. I wondered that there was none to uphold. So what did he do? Did he pack up and go home? Did he, when he looked and saw that there was none of us that could save ourselves, there was none of us that could save our brethren or our sisters, did he pack up his bags and go back to heaven? No, he said, therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me. And my fury had upheld me. <laughs> oh my, <laughs> oh my, he went a little further. He went a little, what a symbol of what the Lord has done. He went so far ahead of us that he did, he tread the winepress alone. He tread it alone. Gethsemane means an oil press. Jesus felt the weight. He was feeling the weight of his coming sacrifice. He wasn't becoming sin. He had not become sin yet, but he knew it was coming and therefore he was Sore amazed. The Greek word phrase there literally means to throw into terror, to throw into a mate, to alarm thoroughly. There was no cell of his body that wasn't affected by what he was thinking about. He says he was very heavy. And that word there literally means to be sated. That means to be filled up, to be sated unto loathing. He was so full of the grief that he was experiencing. And in fact, being exceeding sorrowful means to be encompassed with grief. He was so full of that that it was as if he were sated, if he were completely full and overflowing. Luke tells us in chapter 22 and verse 44, he was in an agony. He was in an agony. And that word literally in Greek is agonia. It's where we get our word agony. And, it, 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 and it's referencing a struggle for victory, a gymnastic exercise such as wrestling and it references the severe mental and emotional struggles and something that Luke tells us and we just turn over there just so we can see it in chapter 22 that the others don't tell us verse 44 it says being in an agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were Great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
Now, don't get confused about that. Don't go off like some have and say, well, he was sweating blood. He wasn't sweating blood. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. This is a comparison here. It was as if he were bleeding through the pores of his skin. He wasn't bleeding. He was, he was sweating so much because he was in such an agony that these great drops of sweat that, looked, that were, as it were, blood were coming out of his skin. You remember the oil press imagery? You remember what we said about that, about how those great slabs of stone crushed those, those olives and pressed out every last drop of olive oil into a pit? Jesus Christ is about to feel the weight of every sin, of every elect child of God, of every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And he knows it's coming. I'm sure, you know, I I trust I'm preaching to, to children of God that have been born again and that feel from time to time the sense of their own sin. And I want to ask you something that I think Brother David Crawford referenced when he was preaching for us. But think about, just think about one time in your life where you felt convicted and burdened by one sin that you had committed. Can you think about that? Can you think of just one, one time in your life where you, where you committed a sin and you were immediately cast down about it and you felt the burden, you felt the weight of it. You felt, I am such a sinner. I can't believe I did that. Or I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe that I, that I lied or I did some other kind of... I, think about one time in your life. One time. I'm sure you can think of many if you're like me. <clears throat> think about one time in your life where you were cast down. You felt the burden of your sin. And now think about the burden of all the sins that you have ever committed. You see, the way you felt on that occasion doesn't really even come close to the way you ought to feel. You ought to feel so burdened and cast down by it that, uh, uh, that you'll never do it again. <laughs> but, but, but Jesus felt it perfectly. That one sin, he was going to feel the weight of that one sin perfectly. But guess what? He was also going to feel the weight of every single sin that you, as an individual, elect child of God, have ever committed in your life. I'm 53 years old. And I can't number the number of sins that I've committed. And some of them I've dismissed. It's not that big a deal, Brother Mac. Some of them have been a big deal. And those are the ones I'm thinking about right now. But listen, even the ones you didn't think were a big deal were a big deal to God. Think about the millions of sins that you have committed in your lifetime and then multiply that by a number that no man can number, the number of the elect children of God. He tells us we can't number them for the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. Think about the burden of every single sin of every single child of God that's ever lived in the whole history of the world or ever will live. And that's the weight that Jesus is thinking about and is going to experience is that olive press, that press of the wrath of God comes down upon him and pushes him down 
That weight wouldn't actually be on him until the cross. But oh, here in Gethsemane, why do you think he went to Gethsemane and not to some other place? Because it's there that he would be reminded that the oil press, the press of God's anger and wrath would be coming down upon him. And notice what he does while he's here. Verse 35 of Mark 14. He went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And here's his prayer. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. So let me stop right there. Is Jesus saying, I'm scared and I don't want to go forward? I want to get out of this. No, he's not saying that. He had that opportunity. The devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, if you'll just worship me, you can have all this. Effectively, the devil was saying, you can bypass the cross. I'll give you these kingdoms. You don't have to. I'll give you this inheritance that God says he'll give to you if you'll, if you'll follow through with the plan of Calvary, with the purpose of eternal salvation. Jesus could have said yes then. I mean, you know he couldn't. You and I both know he couldn't but because he's God. But I'm saying in, in the sense of as we look at it, there was a choice there. But he made the choice that he's always going to make, and he's going to make it because he loves you. And he has loved you from before the foundation of the world. And because he loved you from before the foundation of the world, he's going to make that choice every time to stay the course to be steady as a rock, to set his face like a flint toward Calvary. And so he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And we could talk about what that means. I, I believe it's what he's saying to God is, Father, I know I have to drink this cup. He, in fact, he tells in John uh, when Peter cuts off the high priest's ear, he says, the cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? There's no question he's going to drink it. But you know, what the, you, know what the, you know what the promise is? The promise that God had made to him was that if you'll drink this cup, I'll not leave your soul in hell. You'll experience it. You'll experience all the wrath for all time for all my children but I'm not going to leave you alone. Now, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into trying to separate. I was talking this weekend with a preacher from Arkansas about how sometimes we try to break things down too much. I mean, you know, what part was emotional? What part was spiritual? What part of his suffering was physical? I mean, listen, he was, it, it, he was suffering in every way a man could ever suffer. So we can just leave it at that, okay? On the cross... He was going to suffer in every possible way you can think about suffering. You think about suffering and what you think is terrible suffering and then multiply that by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands and maybe you'll get close to what he suffered, okay? But I do believe that one of the greatest fears, the greatest dreads that he had, one of the reasons he was so heavy was not just the fact that he was going to die, but that this pure, precious, 
holy son of God who had always ever been the apple of his father's eye. Notice he said, Abba, Father. You know what that means in Hebrew? That Abba, that's like, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, my father. It's another thing for us to say, Daddy. Daddy. When I, you know, I love my father. He was my father, but he was my daddy. He was my daddy. I want to be daddy to my children. I don't want to just be their, their father that's so high and mighty that he can't be touched. I want to be their daddy. God is our daddy. God was his daddy. Abba, father. Abba, father. A pre- I don't read where he uses that very often at all in his earthly ministry. But here he's talking to, to, uh, to, to his own father. And he's saying, Abba, daddy, father. It's a term of endearment. All things are possible to you. And I know what's coming. I'm going to be separated from you. You see, the eternal Godhead is just that. It's eternal. It's always existed. And and it's always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship, unbroken in place or time or, or, or purpose, perfectly together. In love, what a, what a precious thought that is. But now, Jesus is approaching the time when the displeasure of, of his almighty father, of his daddy, his Abba father, the displeasure of his Abba father is about to be focused upon him and not for anything that he's done. Three times he prays this prayer. Father, let the cup pass. He didn't say, I don't want to drink it. He didn't say, I'm too afraid to drink it. He said, Father, I'm going to drink it, but let it pass. I know there's a time, and, and I don't know what that time was. I'm not here to preach about it. I just know there was a time when Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Think about, think about your father. If you had, think about, if you didn't, think about your father, if you had a good close relationship with your father, think about someone you did have a good close relationship with, or you do have a good close relationship with, looking to them and saying, Father, why are you forsaking me? And the father not coming to his rescue. If I cried out to my father when he was alive, when he was on his bed of affliction, I promise you, if I had called out to him, he would have come to me. Aunt Lorraine knows this story. When I was 15 years old, I had an accident. And I wasn't thinking straight after my accident. I got up on the tractor and I drove it back down to the farm. But about two-tenths of a mile from the farm, I passed out driving that tractor. And my granddaddy McCoo, Aunt Lorraine's father, my granddaddy, he was a very, at that point in his life, he was a very weak man. He'd had multiple heart attacks. He, was, he used to be a strong, strapping, hard worker. But he, was, he was not bedridden, but mostly he wasn't able to do anything much. And I came down, I don't even remember this part, but I hit the, I hit the uh, power line pole right in front of their house. Knocked it down, knocked the power out. By the grace of God, it went forward instead of backwards on me. 
and Mr. Lonzo Malone and Barry Carver, they got me off the tractor. But the vision that stays in my mind to this day is my grandfather running, not walking. I've never seen him run in my life. <laughs> he was running from the cardboard of his house to where I was. And he helped load me up and take me to the hospital and stayed with me. And he died one week later to the day. He wasn't going to lay there. <laughs> he was going to come help me. But I want you to listen to me. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God did not come and take him from the cross and relieve him of the suffering. He did not turn his displeasure from his son. And it wasn't because of anything his son had done. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he did not turn away. He made him drink the full cup of his wrath. Whatever that means, whatever that entails. I don't know all the details. I'm not trying to break it down because I can't break it down for you. I can just tell you that God was ultimately pleased with the fact that he did drink it to the dregs. Because he did, you and I can sit here today and worship the king. You know why he's worth worshiping? Because in Gethsemane, he didn't turn away. He didn't turn away. He, he should have. He shouldn't have stayed there for me. I've sinned today. I'll sin again today. I'll be convicted today. And I hope I'll remember today the feeling that Jesus must have felt knowing the weight of all of the sins of all of his people. We're going to be laid upon him in just a few hours. Brother David Crawford said to us, there's a difference in going and not knowing and going and knowing. Jesus knew better than anyone what he was about to face. And as he crossed that brook Kidron, I can see him glance down. I, this give, allow him cover me with a mantle of charity here. Let me, let, let me speculate just for a moment. I'm not trying to add to or take away. I just, I just see him in my mind's eye. As he crosses, as he approaches that bridge where the scapegoat was led by the fit man across the dark and gloomy brook that carried the blood of the sacrifices away from the altar. And he goes into the garden and he begins to pray, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father, let this cup pass. Don't leave me in hell. Nevertheless, not thy will, but mine be done. As he feels that weight of the oil press, of the press of God's wrath coming upon him, soon to afflict him. I don't know what he was seeing of us, but I know this. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. What knowledge is that? The foundation of God standeth sure. 
having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Yes, he saved his people. It's a great multitude. But praise God, he saved me. Think about that. I love you all. I love all of you. I'm so glad. I expect to be in heaven with you. But the only way I can be in heaven is not that God saved an amorphous mass of people out there that he didn't know who they were. He knew me. He knew you. And he died for you. He was willing to continue the path to Calvary through the garden of the oil press Gethsemane, crossing the brook Kidron, becoming sin for us. May God help us to remember that as we go about our daily walk. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.